A safe environment does not mean an environment where nobody gets offended. Actually, it's probably more the opposite of that. Leadership has a lot to do with pulling out of people what's already in them and, and that they may not recognize in themselves. Fundamentally, leadership is about the success of the person you're leading. Most people are not equipped to understand the seemingly endless facets of an HOA. That's why we're here to help you become uncommonly prepared to serve your HOA. Whether you're a board member or a manager, join us in the Uncommon Area. Welcome to the Uncommon Area. I am Matthew Holbrook, and in this episode, we continue our series on leadership. And joining me to talk about leadership is the founder and principal of Enlumen Leadership Services, Alan Weisenberger. And uh, Alan, glad that you can be here today. And uh, yeah, just want to right out the gates, throw a throw one at you, and uh, ask you to start off with um, tell us an example of someone you think that exemplifies a good leader. Somebody maybe that you've known or read about or... Yeah, so that's a challenging one to, to hit right out of the gate. The, the problem with putting a name to that is that I'm reluctant to take people that I've read about and like their leadership material and call them a good leader if I haven't actually sat under their leadership. And yet if I call, start calling out names of people who've actually been leaders in my life, it's like, who am I going to forget? There's been a lot of, a lot of good ones. So... Yeah. Uh, so it's a little challenging to, to do that. One of the challenges is that leadership isn't fully fungible. You can't take somebody who's a good leader in one context, put them in another context, and assume they're going to be a good leader. Uh, while there are principles that are consistent uh, with good leaders, the way it gets expressed can be very different. I'll give you a good example. Uh, in his book, The Culture Code, author Daniel Coyle talks a lot about Greg Popovich, uh, Popovich is the head coach of the San Antonio Spurs, and if you've ever seen videos or watched him on uh, out on the court, uh, he's a pretty volcanic personality. Uh, he gets thrown out of games, he's cussing out his players, and you think, this guy's a terrible leader. And yet, what's really fascinating is that if you talk to his players who are fiercely loyal to him, uh, they would call him a good leader. People want to be coached by Popovich. So why is that? Uh, I would not peg him as a good leader. But what makes it work for Popovich is, is what happens off the court. His players know that he believes in them. He wants the best for them. They feel safe with him. So when he's yelling at them at the, on the court, they know that he's not threatening them. He's pushing them to give their very best. And that's one of the characteristics of a leader is, is that they want the best out of those that they're leading. And Popovich is a good example. I don't think Popovich would be a good leader to me. I don't think I would respond well to that kind of leadership. In contrast that to Tony Shea, who's the founder of Zappos Shoes, uh, his reputation is for probably saying less than any other person in the room in any given situation. And yet he too has fiercely loyal uh, people and they've been very successful. So there's all kinds of leadership and they're not completely transferable from one situation to another. Yeah, I think going back a long time now to um, the book Built to Last uh, by, is it Jerry Porras and uh -huh. Jim Collins, um, they highlight in that some of the, the long-term more successful companies 
are led by people with dramatically different styles. You have um, big extroverts and uh, really serious introverts. Um, and and uh, you can still have successful leadership going either way. So would you say that it's, it's fair to say that um, there are uh, leadership styles that can differ dramatically from one person to another, but there are still kind of core leadership principles that all good leaders might share. Would that be a, a fair way to put it? Uh, yes, I would totally agree with that. So when we think about those, um, those leadership principles that are fundamental and can be shared by varying types of personalities, you've kind of alluded to one uh, to start off with, somebody who can pull the best out of their people, um, you talked about someone who creates a, um, a safe environment. Um, I think in, in, intrinsic in that is this idea of, of building trust. Um, what else might you talk about or think about when it comes to some of those um, immovable leadership principles? Yeah, trust is certainly uh, key. You can't have good leadership without trust. And we could probably spend our whole time talking about nothing but trust. But uh, I go back to fundamentally the way I would define leadership. Uh, you know, leadership is about influence. We know that. Uh, if, if I don't need to influence someone who's following me, then they don't need me as a leader. If they're going to do the right thing, the best thing in every situation, they don't need me to help them get there. Um, so... Fundamentally, leadership is about the success of the person you're leading. So uh, if I'm going to stop you there for a second, maybe this takes you a different direction, but you just triggered a thought. If someone doesn't already knows what to do, then they don't need you as a leader. Um, it made me think, uh, how much of leadership do you think is actually providing direction, guidance, influence in ways that somebody might not naturally go versus how much of leadership is sometimes just reminding people of things they already know, but just need to be reminded of and, and, and encouraged to do what they really want to do, but maybe just need that, that extra push. Um, does that question make sense? Yeah. And, and it's definitely a blend of both and figuring out the right blend when leading any given individual is part of the challenge uh, because leadership has a lot to do with pulling out of people what's already in them and, and that they may not recognize in themselves. It's pulling that out. And sometimes you have to push against the resistance. Uh, sometimes uh, people have tried to uh, take what I say about leadership and think that I've got this warm, fuzzy, kumbaya version of leadership. But that's that may be a factor in some situations, but that doesn't uh, draw the best out of people necessarily. Uh, they need to know they're cared for, which is, again, a fundamental leadership thing. Again, Popovich off the court, you know, that halftime locker room conversation with the guy who just pulled some bonehead play on the court, you know, he's, Popovich is likely sitting next to him, may have his arm on his shoulder and say, hey, it's okay, you know, brush it off. You can do better. I believe in you. You know, it's that kind of a, a thing. Uh, so, so you have to actually care about the people that you're leading. That's, that's really important. So it's part of, uh, um, part of maybe, but in addition to uh, trust, uh, developing a, a, a relationship of trust that comes out of genuinely caring about that person. Um, I want to come back to the, the kumbaya style of leadership here in just a second, but a, a comment on this um, reminding versus saying things that are actually helpful um, 
my sons play football um, and um, they have a coach. Um, so there's like 12 coaches on the team. So I'm not specifying who it is, but they have a coach who has a tendency um, when the players come off the field and they're, uh, you know, having a, a, a team huddle or whatever during a timeout or something, the coach's uh, mantra will be something like, you guys need to block better, block better. And um, the team responds to that saying, uh, yeah, coach, we, we know we need to block better. How are we supposed to do that? <laughs> and so there's not anything um, in that case, uh, there's kind of this common discussion that, uh, that they relay on the team that um, uh, the players have frustration about that leadership because they're being told to do something that they already know. Um, but the leadership is not unlocking something that allows them or helps them to actually be more successful in what they know they need to do. Um, and so it seemed like what you're saying, you, a leader needs to know the people that they're leading. And then maybe that's a way to put it is, is how do you, how do you unlock or pull out of them? Maybe what they already know, but help them to, to be more successful in that way. Yeah. Leadership. Uh, we tend to judge leadership by what happens in a given moment, but the leadership that's successful in that moment has happened. There's a backdrop behind that. There's a canvas that's been painted. You know, uh, if they don't have the competency to be able to block, you can tell them to block all day long. But as part of your job as a leader to develop the skills, one of the core principles, and this this comes out of a a book by uh, uh, David Marquet, who had a fascinating story in his his book called Turn the Ship Around. Uh, he was put in charge of a Navy submarine and uh, uh, quite a fascinating tale. I, I won't go into it in detail, but one of the principles that he brings out is that if you want to push down decision-making and, and in an organization, uh, you need to push down two other things. You have to push down competency and you have to push down clarity. You've got to be really clear on what you want and you've got to push down the competency. So in the case of, of your son's coach, uh, the competency piece sounds like it's missing. Yeah. It's clear he wants them to block, right. but the competency isn't there. Right. I actually think in most business contexts, the competency tends to get more attention than the clarity. Uh, we tend to think something in our mind and believe it's clear to those who are leading, and we don't recognize what it takes to actually get that clarity well communicated so that they can execute on that even when the leader isn't present. Yeah, or even kind of from the other other angle, sometimes there's a lot of direction on, I want you to do this, this, and this, and here's how I want you to do it, but maybe not clarity on here's what the why is or what we're actually trying to accomplish, just paint by numbers without the understanding of what the ending of the painting is supposed to look like. That's a big one. Uh, the whole why, uh, you know, Simon Sinek's got his whole thing on start with why, and I think he's right on the money with that, that we are better equipped to do a good job uh, and to accomplish our shared success if I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because what happens, you start doing something, something unexpected comes up. And if you don't know the why, you have to make a choice and it might steer you away from accomplishing the purpose of what you're doing. But if you know why, you can make decisions that will guide you uh, within the, the guardrails of what you understand the reason why you're doing what you're doing. Well, back to the, the kumbaya style of leadership. And I, I know you don't want me um, uh, labeling it in that way, um, but just as a reference point, it does sound like where you're coming from and what you are advocating for has a lot to do with a leader being responsible for developing a certain type of culture that produces certain kinds of results. Um, 
Can you maybe speak to that? How, do, how does leadership and culture and how does this uh, go together and how does that fit with kind of the direction you're going with, with talking about leadership? Yeah, you know, my whole purpose for, for what I'm doing at Illumin Leadership Services is to uh, create leaders who create the kind of environment where people thrive. Uh, again, the goal of, le- of a leader is to uh, the success of those that they're leading, and together that creates a shared success. And, and that requires a culture, a context, uh, that where things will happen when the leader isn't present. Now, you, you have a choice. You can create all the policy and procedure manuals. You could have a whole shelf of them lined up here that describes every situation you can think of, but we all know something's going to come up that you've not described in that policy and procedure manual. So what guides people to make decisions when they haven't been specifically trained on what to do in that situation? This comes back to the idea of values, having clearly articulated and oft repeated and just you know, driven into the DNA kind of values that will guide decision making. And so it's the leader's responsibility to divine and bring clarity to those values. So what does that look like? Uh, you, you talked about driving it into the DNA. Um, just practically speaking, if, you, if, a, if a leader, you're providing consulting or coaching to a particular leader and they're like, okay, I buy in, Alan. That's, I understand that's what I need to do, but like, what do I do tomorrow? Like, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, great. Uh, Matt, I'm the one asking the questions, yeah. <laughs> Actions, core values, I don't know if I remember them all. Teamwork is one of them. We, are, we are a team. So, so let's take We Are a Team. Matthew, tell me a story of how you have seen We Are a Team played out in the last week or so at Action. Yeah, so that's a that's a, a great question, and just to highlight, obviously, what you are doing is is your your answer to my question is storytelling, yes. uh, highlighting where th- where this actually um, plays out really well. Um, I can tell you that in our environment, we recently we have a um, a uh, a client where there is a significant crisis going on. Um, and in fact, I probably this might not be the best story because there are details of this that I can't talk about, um, but it's pretty significant and it um, actually could be something that might be newsworthy at some point. And um, there was a coming together of the team of uh, various people who could be a part of, the, of coming up with the solution. And um, it really was evidence where there, there was clarity, number one, that there were, are certain people on the team that were potentially in a vulnerable place. And so there was a clear articulation from amongst the team that the actual safety and care and, um, and concern for those team members was of paramount concern. And there was uh, discussion around that and action steps put in place to address those issues. Um, but then further, there was um, a, uh, a very clear um, absence of ego within the team dynamic so that uh, um, there was a, a shared goal of how are we going to address this very large looming issue and to do that in a way that there, wa- there are one or two people in, within that team that are kind of like the point people that are the ones that every, all eyes are going to be on. How do we help them to be successful in addressing that scenario, even though there's this, this whole team of people behind them, but it's all around how do we help them um, do what needs to be done to, to create a successful end? And so um, 
It's a little bit ambiguous because I can't speak to the details, but this is, you asked for this week, this is literally just in the last couple of days. Yeah. And, uh, and so uh, again, yeah, uh, genuine concern for fellow team members um, was expressed, a, an absence of ego and a, a, a true desire to know who needs to be successful and what can we do to help those individual members of the team uh, be successful. Good example. So as you mentioned, the, the point in that is that storytelling is key. You can articulate your values. You can have that bullet pointed list. And I know action has some sub points under that to help bring some clarity. And that's really good stuff. But none of that will drive home into a person's psyche the same way uh, story after story after story of what teamwork looks like. If it, I was, sorry to interrupt, but if I was telling that story, um, and because of the nature of that, I, I wouldn't in this case, but if we're telling that story and naming names and giving specific examples within that, that's what gives feet to the, the understanding of yes. those values to understand and to recognize and say, people can say, yeah, I know that person and I see how that played out and uh, it becomes much more apparent. Because if you had 10 people in the room and you said, one of our values is we are a team, you 10 people, you'd probably have 12 different answers as to what that actually means and what that looks like. But when you tell stories, people are able to connect the dots between what that phrase means. And, oh, you mean that means I should do this and not this. Now you're driving it home. The second thing beyond telling the stories is repetition over and over and over. Repeating the stories. You, I, I challenge leaders often to have... Uh, uh, a fresh story at least every week on every one of your values. And that's not many, uh, you know, but just to be building this whole portfolio of stories that you should be ready to just rattle off stories. Just like I asked you, every leader ought to have stories on the tip of their tongue and preferably fresh stories. Some of the old stories are great to retell and they're well worth right. it, but, but you're just helping people make the connection be between the behaviors that you expect of them as demonstrated in the stories and what the value actually means. Yeah. Um, are there any resources um, specifically regarding uh, the development of culture and how to do that um, from a leadership standpoint that, that you might be able to point to? Yeah. Uh, one of my favorites I, I mentioned before, Daniel Coyle's book, The Culture Code, uh, is a really excellent uh, resource. And, and he brings down three key points, one of them about creating a safe environment. You want people to feel safe in, in disagreeing with you as the leader. You don't want a bunch of yes men. Uh, you don't want argumentative people, so the disagreements should be productive. Uh, but that's one and shared vulnerability is another. When a leader is vulnerable, we talk about building trust. Vulnerability is a key part of building trust. And you know you're building good trust when you create this vulnerability loop where I, as a leader, say something that shows a little vulnerability when you, in turn, then are willing to show a little vulnerability. Now we've got this vulnerability loop going that will strengthen our culture and make sure that things aren't being hidden that need to have some light shined on, on to them. And then the third piece is just establishing purpose. we got to know where we're going, what we're trying to accomplish, because the goal is a shared success. I, as a leader, am willing to sometimes make some sacrifices to things that I think will make my success in order for the shared success to happen. But again, that's where, where the leader is focused on the success of those they're leading, because when they're successful, you as the leader will be successful as well. So according to the culture code, three primary... Um, principles to developing a culture that produces success. A leader can help to develop a culture that's safe, where there's shared vulnerability, and where there's shared success. Um, I do want to pick at one of those, and I'm curious about this. 
um, the safe environment. Um, my experience, oftentimes in today's world, when somebody says, I need this to be a safe place or a safe environment, the translation of that is, I want to make sure you don't say anything that offends me, bothers me, or that disagrees with me. Um, I think sometimes people think of safe in that way. Um, within a successful culture, um, I'll, um, and specifically here at Action, for example, I want there to be a culture where there is disagreement and where people can say things without having to watch every word that they say. We, we want to care about each other, but we want, we want raw, like real opinions able to be expressed. Um, and sometimes that's going to mean that's going to potentially offend somebody or bother somebody or how, how, do, how would you put that all together? Yeah, uh, a safe environment does not mean an environment where nobody gets offended. Actually, it's probably more the opposite of that, where it's safe to offend somebody because you know it's not going to, the relationship is deep enough, there's enough trust, and you know that each other is, you're looking out for each other's success, you're caring about one another, and so offenses will be easily overlooked. We have a culture today that does not want to overlook offenses, and yet a safe environment is one where the trust is deep enough that an offense is not going to destroy the, la uh, the relationship. The, the offense will be processed and dealt with and brought to a healthy place. I can think of a context of an organization uh, where I have a leadership role that uh, uh, a few months ago, we had a meeting that got very contentious between primarily between me and one other individual and it was a fairly heated exchange and yet uh, I can tell you today our relationship has not been uh, hurt by that whatsoever because we talked it through we came to understand I had used a trigger word that was triggering that person in ways that I didn't anticipate. And, and you know, we kind of calmed down and talked it through. And, and, and you, know, we, you process it and you work it through and you don't let the offense define the relationship. I think that's a super important clarification. And, and uh, I might steal that from you, Alan, <laughs> this idea that we want a safe environment. And um, this could certainly be abused. But what, if I'm hearing you correctly, the idea is it is a safe environment means that I am, I am safe to offend you as opposed to I am safe from you offending me. And, and yeah, exactly. But with the caveat, it is not my intent to offend Absolutely, you. Absolutely, yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. So there has to be a genuine care and a desire to, uh, to preserve relationship. But I know if, if the, the safe environment that you're talking about, I know that I can say what I believe needs to be said, knowing that if it does offend you, or if I, if I take a misstep and say something that inadvertently offends you, um, that there's room within the relationship for that to happen. And so I don't have to step so carefully and we can actually have better communication and drive towards actually being on the same page because we're both expressing what we're really thinking about a particular issue. Exactly. When you have an environment that's not safe, there are things get hidden, they get stuffed, they, they fester, uh, they just create a lack of health in, in many ways. So we wanna, we wanna air that stuff and learning how to do it in a healthy way is part of, you know, growing and being good leaders and creating an environment where the people we're leading can be healthy. So one resource I know that speaks to um, this particular issue that really kind of outlines this well is Patrick Lencioni's book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And uh, as he walks through that, uh, those five dysfunctions, you see 
the the counter of what are actually the characteristics of a healthy team. But it really is a, a lot of what he's describing in that book is speaking to this issue of of having a team where you can have, and he speaks of, of healthy conflict, which uh, requires um, this this kind of safe dynamic that you're describing, and and that comes out of um, out of out of the book um, the Culture Code. Um, so that's really helpful. Um, anything else that uh, that's on your mind that you think that maybe um, people in leadership positions often don't think about or are not aware of that uh, that you would kind of maybe you see as a pattern or that you'd really like to highlight and say, leaders, this is one you might be missing, but really think about this. Well, I think one thing that is sometimes an aha moment for some people is just recognizing the distinction between being a leader and being a manager. Yeah. Um, They're both important skill sets, but they are two different skill sets. And the short definition that I would give to it is that a manager's role is to make an organization successful. And if you don't believe that, if you've got the manager of a department and they're not success, you know, the, the department's not successful, how long are they going to keep that job as a manager? So a manager's job is to make an organization successful. A leader's role is to make people successful. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm managing an organization, I think it's going to be a lot easier to be successful if I have successful people within my organization. So leadership is all about how do you uh, inspire, how do you motivate, create the environment where people can succeed and reach their full potential. Yeah. So um, you're just to, to recap that you are saying that um, a manager is going to be directing in such a way so that the organization can have success. A leader is going to be influencing in such a way so that individual people have success. And the idea that as those people are successful, um, that's going to come together and ultimately result in a successful organization. And most of the time, those two skill sets work together. There are times when you actually kind of have to choose between the manager getting a task done kind of a mindset versus the leader wanting to develop the people side of things. And sometimes you have to make choices. But I think just an example, often, let's say I am a manager of a department and I've been given some task that my department has to do. And now I have to decide, am I going to give it to this person or this person or this person? What's the criteria that I use for that decision? One that most naturally comes to mind, let me give it to John. John has done it 10 times before. He can do it just like that. He's really good at it. So I want to give it to John. The manager will take that approach and say, give it to John and get it done. Although, of course, John is probably, if he's good at things, he's probably busy with a lot of other things, so we just make his load bigger. The leader would look at it and say, John could do this in his sleep. Susan, you know what? Susan's never done this before, but she could do it, and she'd be energized by this opportunity to stretch and grow. Maybe she wouldn't, but I think she could benefit from doing it anyway. I'm going to give it to Susan. Now, there's a trade-off there because that probably means I'm going to have to spend more time with Susan to help her do it the first couple of times, and I could just give it to John, and I can move on and do other things. But you can see kind of the tension between the manager, just get the task done as efficiently as possible, and the leader who says, I want to develop Susan because I'm going to increase our organizational capacity if Susan can do this well too. And plus, People like to be developed. So if I'm helping Susan grow her capabilities, her loyalty, her commitment to what we're doing is going to grow. Yeah. So um, 
to emphasize uh, both leadership and management skills are imperatives. Um, but there are different situations where one might be more relevant than another, and sometimes it's a combination. Um, it seems that there's there's multiple different factors that could play into that, but one of them is the the relevancy of time, um, where leadership is going to be functioning more kind of in the background, preparing for a moment, whereas management might be in a, you might be in the moment. Right. And I'm thinking, like, if you and I were to uh, to be out on a golf course, for example. Sorry to, to go to another sports analogy, but. If we're, we were out on a golf course and you found yourself in a greenside bunker and you didn't know how to play the shot, I could probably give you direction in that moment that would get you out of the bunker and that you would be able to make an okay shot to be able to continue playing that round. But that wouldn't make you in that moment a good bunker player. It would just solve that problem in that moment. So I would say that might be kind of more of a management function. Mm -hmm. But if we were to meet regularly... Um, at a, um, at a practice facility and work on bunker shots, I'd be taking a completely different approach with what I would be telling you to do with your swing so that you would understand the whole concept and what you're trying to accomplish and how to do it and be able to play in different types of scenarios and not just that specific um, situation. So that might be kind of the more, more of the concept of, of leadership. And part of it ties back to what you were saying earlier about communicating the why. If you're coaching me and training me, you can make sure I understand why I'm choosing to swing this way or use this club or whatever in that scenario versus getting out of the hole. You can say, use this club, swing it this way, and you know, get out of here. Well, just to give you one tip, the, the club you use when you're in the bunker is going to be the sand wedge. So if you're in the sand, that's what you use. But uh, anyway. I'll make note of that if I find <laughs> myself in a, in a bunker. Well, I think that's a good place to, uh, to wrap this one up. So thank you very much, Alan. And uh, I hope that that was helpful for you who are watching this episode and uh, would encourage you to continue looking for other episodes in our series on leadership here in the Uncommon area. And um, also just for other episodes all about um, homeowners associations and how to be successful in leading those types of organizations. Mm -hmm.